Welcome to the Coworkers Podcast with Jesse and Shaney, where every believer is a coworker in God's mission. Hey, friends. Happy Christmas, as we say here in South Asia. I'm actually recording this a couple days leading up to Christmas. Looking forward to some time, a Christmas party with our house church that we've organized for tomorrow night. A lot of, of our non believing friends are going to join us for that. So we've been excited about that for a couple of weeks. Looking forward to the opportunity to share some good times and some snacks and and the story of Jesus with people that we know and love that we've been building relationships with. Had a lot of opportunities to see the Lord at work in the lead up to Christmas. This is, a, of course, an incredible time to make the most of the story of Jesus in a time when almost all cultures these days, I feel like, are at least open to the conversation. As the idea of Christmas is spread around the world, we see it bigger and bigger every year here in our city. We also take time, usually, as we have done over the past few years, to take some time here towards the end of the year to look back a little bit and to talk about what the Lord is doing, maybe on a larger scale. Uh, last year, we took a look at the state of the gospel around the world. This year, wanted to take a look at the state of the gospel in our own hearts, maybe, just to think about the question of what do we do when we're struggling to love our people? The places, all the places where the Lord has sent us, if you're a coworker overseas or maybe preparing to be a sent one, what do we do when we struggle to love the people that the Lord has sent us to? We're coming up on 20 years on the field. There's been different times and seasons in our own lives and in our own hearts of maybe struggling when this has come not so easy to love the people that we've been sent to live and minister among. And as I was thinking about that and even dealing with some of my own struggles to love people well, I came across Jonah in my read through the Bible in a year plan. And man, for some reason this time, the Lord just used it to speak to me and several very deep ways about this issue particularly, but we know that this issue is really wrapped up in how does God see the lost? What is his heart like for lost people and for our people that we've been sent to also? That's ultimately the answer. If we're thinking about for ourselves, if we're struggling, I think that there's a a misunderstanding or a lack of grasping how does God see see them. So before we get to that Jesus Duke answer, we're going to kind of walk through what we see in Jonah that I think speaks to our hearts. He also, we can identify with um, Jonah himself in some really unfortunate ways for us, but ultimately the hope that shines through because of what the book of Jonah reveals us about the heart of God. And so that's the question. First of all, what do we do when our hearts are cold towards our people, unloving, when we're struggling to really feel that desire for their salvation? Ultimately, the answer is we look to how God sees them. But to see along the way, there's grace for us. Even when we're struggling, even when there's times when we're lacking hope. Uh, And I pray, I hope, that as this this year's rounding out, that if you find yourself in that situation, that these words would be a blessing to you. These words from the Lord, written in the book of Jonah, I think, to assure us that our God is the God of the nations, that He desires their salvation far more than we do, and that we can hope and expect for great things in the year to come. It starts out, the book of Jonah, chapter 1, the calling of Jonah says, The word of the Lord came to Jonah, the son of Amittai, saying, Arise, go to Nineveh, that great city, and call out against it, for their evil has come up before me. The great city, he calls it. I can't help but put it in the context of several conversations, meetings, trainings that I've been in over the past few weeks. Part of my role and responsibility is not just to oversee the work in this city, uh, with our team and our organization, but also to look all throughout the mega cities of South Asia, 
Uh, we recently had a meeting where we called several of our city leaders together. We were talking about city strategy. And cities have increasingly been on my own heart. That's something that the Lord has grown my desire, Shane, both Shane and I, in shaping our calling around cities. Cities increasingly are where the people of the world live, where they are. In this century, it's the first time, really in this decade, it's the first time in all of history that there are more people living in cities than there are living in rural areas and village areas. And yes, numbers can seem like a blunt, kind of simplistic approach to addressing need. But we see here in Jonah, God apparently cares greatly about numbers. He says at the end of Jonah, at the end of chapter 4, describing Nineveh again, he says, should not, should not I care about this city where there are more than 120,000 people who do not know their right hand from their left? Why this attention to numbers? Why would he specifically count out the population of this great city? Why call it to mind when he's talking about this great city? I think it's because God is concerned about large numbers of people knowing him and being saved. There's maybe a thought out there, and I, I know I've experienced this and struggled with this at times in my own life. As we think about reporting, as we think about even vision casting, we think about the ways that we use numbers like population numbers, birth rates, death rates, things like that. It, it can seem like we're being very uh, crude or simplistic or kind of pragmatic even. But I think it couldn't be more plain from passages like this that God cares about numbers because numbers represent people. He quotes the very numbers, the population of the city in the story. And <clears throat> not to be too tongue-in-cheek, I guess, but there's an entire book in the Bible that's just called Numbers. There's lots of counting. Uh, that can be a, a chore to read through sometimes, right? But God cares about increasing numbers of his followers, numbers of people who have experienced his salvation, even to the point, ultimately, where they become uncountable. So there is a trajectory, even, I would argue, in the Bible of how God thinks about numbers. The uncountable kind of theme that starts even from the beginning of the promises, from the promise to Abraham. When God leads him outside, he says, look up to the stars, number the stars if you're able, count the sands of the sea if you're able. Meaning obviously that he's not able to do that. And tracing that covenant promise from the beginning to the very end of scripture, that it ends with the fulfillment of that promise in Revelation 7. Behold, I looked at vast multitude that no one could number. And so ultimately, that's what God desires to see. That's the arc of Scripture is greater and greater numbers of people who are precious in God's sight, becoming his followers, his worshipers. We see even practically the beginnings of that breaking out in the book of Acts. There in Acts chapter 2, 3,000 are baptized. They join the number of the church, the believers there. A couple chapters later, there's 5,000 that are mentioned there as being a part of the body in Jerusalem. It says the number of the disciples multiplied greatly a little later on says in Acts 11 about the church in Antioch that they taught a great many people in that church. In Thessalonica, in Acts 17, it says a great many of the devout Greeks and not a few of the leading women joined Paul and Silas. Even in the accusation made against Paul by the Ephesian mob in Acts 19, they say that he's the one who has persuaded and turned away a great many people all throughout Asia. I think what we see there is the fulfillment of God's promise and his desire to see lots of people worshiping him. To see the number of those, that crowd in Revelation grow and grow to the point where it is, will be ultimately uncountable. He wants great numbers of people to worship his son. He wanted this vast multitude in Nineveh to turn from their ways to repent and to worship him. He wants them to be saved from the fire. He desires, according to 1 Timothy 2.4, for all people to be saved and to come to the knowledge of the truth. 
And that's why I think he's concerned for the great cities even today because they're the places where people are. It's the first time in history, like I said before, that more people live in cities than in village areas. The megacities of the world continue to grow and multiply. Over the course of this century, we'll see the global population spike around 10 billion people. And in the midst of that, I believe God is saying to his people, arise and go to those great cities. Our city where we live is projected to be the largest city in the world by mid-century, by 2050. I have no idea where they're going to put all these extra millions of people that they're projecting to move to our city or to be born in our city. But that is what this century is, is going to be. Barring another huge, some huge national natural catastrophe or even another, God forbid, an outbreak of some kind of virus, cities are going to be where we find the people in this century. And I think God is saying, he's asking his church, his people, arise and go to those great cities. I think sometimes as we think about numbers, even we think about vast numbers of people. I know that we feel this a lot. In a city of 25 million people, Maybe we don't like talking about numbers because it makes us feel like failures. It discourages us because I always, even coming to the end of a great year, looking back, being able to report on incredible things that God has done, it always kind of seems like at the end of the day that it's not enough, that we haven't made a dent. It's just a drop in this vast bucket. And so can we keep asking God for more fruit in a way that motivates us and doesn't result in maybe some unhealthy shame or some discouragement that we shouldn't be taking on ourselves. I think the way that we do that is by continuing to direct ourselves to the picture of God as presented in places like Jonah, that it's God's desire to see a great many people. He's working towards that end. He's working alongside of us and ahead of us and over the top of us and behind us in ways that we can't even see and imagine. And that even if we can't see it, God is at work. Ultimately, the things that he'll do for his kingdom will be far beyond what we can see and what we can account for. And we can rest in that ultimately because he is the Lord of the harvest and because like Jonah and other places make clear to us, he wants people to be saved. So in Jonah, God sends him out. He says, arise, go to that great city. And he gives him a specific work to do. I think this is important for us to clarify as well. Maybe especially in the city's conversation, but honestly, anywhere that we're doing as God's people, anywhere that we're doing work among the unreached, or even in our own places, even in America. The work he was called to do, it says, call out against it in verse two of chapter one, for their evil has come up before me. In chapter three, once after having been rescued from the fish, having gone finally to the city, God says to him, call out against it the message that I tell you. And then what Jonah proclaims to them is judgment. He says, repent for judgment's coming. And I think we need to be clear here. It's a picture of the work that God ultimately calls us to do among the nations, the peoples and places of the world. Having been in the city conversation for some time, several years now, meeting and talking about city strategy, city ministry, church planting and multiplication in cities, I've heard a lot of different things about, uh, sometimes framed as like shalom or blessing the city that we're in, kind of city uplift or things like that. And sometimes I do fear in some circles, not not thankfully in many of ours where our coworkers are, are laboring, but in some circles, I think that it becomes really like social action that's shrouded in Christian language. And that's not to say that we should have no concern for blessing our city or being a blessing to our city or for justice in the public square in our cities or for good 
honest government that does lead to the betterment of people. But I, I do think it's a heart check to see if in our ministry, first and foremost, we view it always as first calling people back to God by calling them to repent and believe, by calling sin what it is and, and calling people to respond, respond appropriately to that. We ultimately bless our cities most by calling people to turn back to God, by lifting up the name of Jesus so that people can be drawn to him and be saved. And we have to be in the midst of that, willing to say things that people don't want to hear, that they won't immediately applaud or even perceive as a blessing to their city. This is the clear pattern of the early church's activity in the New Testament. Most lost people in the places where we are, the cities where we are, they're not asking for someone to come and tell them the gospel. But they may see something that you're doing, some kind of social action or social uplift, working among the poor, and they may laud you for that. But connected to that is they're not being confronted about their own sin through that. And so we have to be clear about what is ultimately the message that we bring. It's not just that we want people's lives to be better, though we do. It's not just that we want to fight injustice wherever it rears its head, though we do. It's ultimately this, is that people who are apart from God are not reconciled to him and their, their sin, their wickedness is odious to him. And there is a penalty that's coming. That our God, just and holy as he is, he has wrath, justified wrath towards sin. And we have to repent and turn away from that sin and believe in his provision, his provided way of salvation, his son, Jesus Christ, in order to be rescued from that. That is the foundation and the non-negotiable of what we do and how we live, how we minister in cities as God's people. And so we have to be willing to say those uncomfortable things. And it's just a really good heart check. If in the midst of our ministry, we find ourselves hesitant or unwilling to speak those unwelcome truths to people. If we find in ourselves that, that desire, and honestly, sometimes it comes really strongly in the midst of the work that we do specifically, because I think in the places where we live and work, you know, as we think about how people and how the, the culture at large, especially in restricted environments, how they really think about what we do, and even the world, the secular press, how they think about what we do, this is, in some circles, this is the worst type of work that you could do. You know, some people would call it spiritual colonialism. Some people would call it ethnocentrism. Almost everyone would call it intolerant. This is not applauded by the world, the work that we do. And I think that's all the more reason why we have to hold to it. We have to hold to our original callings the Lord sent us out to do is to speak. Speak this message. Speak the message of condemnation towards sin and free salvation in Jesus Christ. And that will not be welcomed. That will not be the thing that we get applauded for, the thing that we get awards for, the thing that we get invited to, to banquets for. That's not what we'll get applauded for in the world's eyes. And so all the more reason for us to look to the Lord and see what he calls us to do. Because following the Lord, as we learn from Jonah's circuitous route to get to Nineveh, means that sometimes you do things that you may not initially want to do, even yourself. Obedience means basically doing what you're told. That doesn't also mean that you always agree or feel like doing it. Apparently, Jonah did not want to do. He wanted to do anything but the mission that God had given to him. It says he fled from the presence of the Lord, which is, of course, impossible. But what he was really fleeing from was obedience. And the longer that I'm here, the longer that really I just walk 
with Christ in general, the more I'm convinced of the power of simple, faith-filled obedience. Obedience oftentimes in our preaching, in our teaching, doesn't get a lot of airtime in our churches because it sounds law-y. It sounds like mindless, kind of heartless drudgery. But obedience, according to the Bible, is the consummation of our faith. It's the sign and the seal that God loves us and that we love Him. If you love me, it says in John 15, 15, you will obey, you'll keep my commandments. Faith begets obedience like a tree produces fruit. If there is no obedience, then we should examine our faith. In Jonah's case, however, he wasn't just disobedient, he was a hateful racist. He was angry when he saw that God showed the Ninevites mercy. He wanted them to be judged, to feel God's wrath. He cared so little for them that he was actually angry when they received God's grace. How hard must his heart have been? And man, it's easy for us to pile on Jonah, I think. But before we rush to judgment, as you thought I might, I want to just ask us to think in our own hearts. Maybe just pose it as the question that God asked to Jonah. Do you do well to be angry? I wonder if you have struggled with being angry in your culture, even in the past week or so. Was there something that set you off? A person that just said the wrong thing, acted the wrong way to you? Any of you feeling fed up with the people in your place? Any of you sensing the roots of bitterness in your heart towards the, the so-called culture? That I think we just try to obscure the truth of it by calling it culture. It's really just the people around us, right? Here's the ugly truth. We can accept a call to work among a people and then fall into all kinds of anger towards those very people. Why won't they listen? Why aren't they more responsive to the gospel? Why don't they show up to our meetings or our trainings on time? Why don't they take this seriously? Why do I always have to accommodate them and their schedule? And why is it always so dirty and crowded around here? I had about a month or so ago, I had an encounter with a policeman here in our city that left me seething, boiling. I paid a pricey ticket largely because this policeman wanted to assert his authority over a foreigner. And man, I was so angry after that. I imagined in my mind, I dreamed up these scenarios for the next like two or three days, how I could have handled that situation to just humiliate him or called into the police department to lodge a complaint against this officer. And I heard God say, and just like he's saying now again, do you do well to be angry? Why are we here if not for these very people that sometimes make us so angry? And if we're really honest, brutally honest with ourselves about whom I think we still harbor some wicked notions of our own cultural superiority. And so how do we manage these critical even sometimes racist thoughts towards the people that we've been called to love and to serve. Ultimately, the solution is going to be found in looking towards God's heart towards those people. We'll get there in just a second, but I would just encourage you, if you don't have a place where you can bring those things out into the light, ugly as they are, if you don't have a circle of people in your life where you can make that plain, that's exactly what I was able to do. There's a group of two other guys, three of us, we meet weekly, and we talk through and we we walk in the light with each other. We take these things, these dirty parts of our heart, and we put them out on the table for one another. And by exposing that sin to the light, it breaks its power and it allows the Lord to work in us and for us even to repent, for us even to turn away, for us to have that accountability and brothers to be able to speak into us about how wrong that is. And I would encourage you, especially if you're a coworker on the field, if you don't have that type of community, you have to have somebody you can walk in the light with, somebody who can 
you can say, man, I felt this hate in my heart towards these people. I need to get rid of this. So we see, I think ultimately, as we think about, ponder the kind of the broad scale dynamics of what was going on in Jonah's heart and so often what goes on in our hearts, we see that the root of this this type of cross-cultural ministry being sent out, the root of that has to be divine because the world, the flesh, and the devil, everything in the world points us in the opposite direction. It orients us towards comparison, towards feelings of superiority, towards selfishness, even racism, and ultimately disobedience. But God's heart points us to the nations. And here's where we see it. He says there at the end of chapter 4, And should I not pity Nineveh, that great city, in which there are more than 120,000 persons who do not know their right hand from their left, and also much cattle. (laughs) I'm not going to comment much about the cattle bit, okay? It is kind of near and dear to my heart, having grown up on a cattle ranch. I can appreciate that. But let's stick with the, the comment about the people. God himself looks at that vast city of Nineveh, all those people he's moved to pity on account of their utter spiritual helplessness. That's what he's getting at. They don't know their right hand from their left. Now, obviously, they were intelligent enough to have a city. They had a king. They had things like that. It was a vast city. But what he's speaking to is their utter spiritual helplessness. When it comes to the true things of the world, they don't know their right hand from their left. They're like children. And what we see is that God pities lost people. He pities them. He concerns himself for their spiritual welfare, for their salvation. And he feels not only pity, right? That's not... 100% of what he feels, because there is wrath. There's anger. He sent Jonah to warn them of his wrath that was coming. And he's justly angered at the wickedness of people, but also in his infinite kindness and mercy, he pities people who are racked by their own wickedness. Pity and mercy are God's basic attitude towards sinners. And it should be ours as well. We should note here that having that heart orientation towards people today is highly offensive. People who are otherwise, and we find so many, thousands, millions of these types of people in our cities who are otherwise well-off, well-educated, seemingly happy and content, they will not accept with kindness your feelings of pity towards them. And yet, when we look at the world, we see multitudes of people who, when it comes to these most essential truths of life, don't know their right hand from their left. That's the biblical truth of it. That's what we have to be clear about with people and clear in our own hearts as well. Our great cities are filled. They're teeming with these types of people that the Lord pities. They're successful in the world's eyes. They would despise your pity. But that doesn't change how we should feel about them. Because that's how God feels about them. That's God's deep down motivation. I think in the scripture, it's the part of his heart that beats the deepest. Jonah himself pointed it out. He recognized this in God. When even in his indignation at what God had done in showing mercy, he says, I knew that you were a gracious God and merciful, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love and relenting from disaster. These titles that Jonah uses, these are God's titles all throughout the scriptures. His heart inclines toward mercy, toward love, toward sinners. That's what the story of Jesus confirms for us more than anything. That when God came as a person, he didn't come in judgment. But first, he came in mercy and tenderness, first as gentle and lowly among his people, because he wanted them to be saved. Friend, coworker, if you are laboring in a hard place, 
if you are struggling to find hope that your people will be saved, and even that maybe that you would see great numbers of your people be saved, be assured that God wants it more than you do. He was insistent that somebody go and tell that great city of Nineveh so that they would turn and be saved. His heart moved him to do that out of pity. And that's why he persists, even in the face of Jonah's disobedience. He desires the salvation of those 120,000 people in Nineveh, and Jonah was his appointed means of bringing it about. Nineveh had to hear, and somebody had to tell them. And that's how it is today. The peoples and the places of the world, including our great cities, they have to hear, and somebody has to tell them. Why didn't God just go with somebody else? When Jonah was disobedient, why didn't he just give up? We don't know the answer to that specifically, but we can take comfort in the fact that he showed ridiculous grace to a very, very ungracious goer. So part of what that means is that God is the one who longs to see the nations worship him far more than we do. It also means that we, fellow co-workers, can still be used by God, even in miraculous ways, even in the midst of our unloving hearts and our unloving feelings. When we're not naturally full of compassion, but we engage and we still obey the Lord, He can still use us. We are not doomed to failure. If you do find yourself at the end of this year, as I many times, to my shame, have found myself throughout my missionary career, not loving people like I should, even seeing roots of bitterness and anger, even seeing those really dark heart uh, thoughts in my own heart about other people. Take heart. God can use you. God can use you in his great compassion and mercy that he poured out, that he directed towards the Ninevites. He poured it out towards Jonah as well. Even when he was being an absolute punk, that he does that to us. And so you're not doomed to failure. 2024 will not be marked by a dark cloud. If you come to the end of 2023 feeling like, man, you've just blown it again, your heart's not in the right place, that doesn't set the trajectory for your future. God's desire, God's love, His mercy does. And that should ultimately inspire us, in us, hope for the work that we've been called to do. It should spark optimism. Jonah, even with a bad heart, he knew that his mission had a great chance of success. He knew that God was gracious, relenting in disaster. He knew that. Is Jonah more optimistic about his field than we are? Do we really believe that God wants to save the people that you've been sent to? Even these great cities of millions and millions of people where we live and work. Do we believe it and are we hopeful about it? I do struggle with that. I've struggled with that many times over the last year. Man, Lord, we've been doing this years and years in this place. People aren't responsive. We haven't seen what we're longing to see. We want to see it. And I think even here the king of Nineveh has something to tell us because he sums up that optimism with his proclamation to the city. He says in Jonah 3.9, who knows? In the midst of him issuing a proclamation to the whole city to, that the people would turn and repent, he says, who knows? God may turn and relent and turn from his fierce anger so that we may not perish. And God saw their repentance and he did that very thing. The king's who knows when he said that, that was a who knows of, of hope. And so that's the question for us. Looking at God and who he is, knowing that he is a God of steadfast love, that he is a God who relents from punishment. Are we hopeful for 2024? Because we should be. Because this is the God who sent us and the God who's at work in the places that we have been sent. 
the who knows that the king spoke there, I think it's a recognition, both of our own ignorance about what is to come, but also a great expectation that the Lord will work because we know who he is and what he's like and what he does. Jonah knew that. And so did Jonathan, Saul's son, in 1 Samuel 14, when he said to his armor bearer, he says, come, let us go over to the garrison garrison of these uncircumcised. It may be that the Lord will work for us, for nothing can hinder the Lord from saving by many or by few. It may be. Who knows whether the Lord will work, for nothing can hinder him from saving. He delights to do it. His heart inclines toward the lost with pity and mercy. And nothing shows that more decisively than the incarnation. You had to know that I was going to do the Christmas juke here at the end. Jesus is, as he always is in the Old Testament, he is the perfect Jonah. He is actually not only the the perfect goer, but he is himself the means of salvation that is proclaimed. He obeyed the Father perfectly when God sent him. When God in his heavenly counsel said to his son, arise and go. Arise and go to the world. He said yes. And all that that would entail, all the hardship that that would entail, all the humility that that would entail, all the suffering that that would entail leading up to the cross and then the cross itself. And in the midst of that, his heart was always full of perfect love. His motivations always pure. His words and his actions seasoned with salt that included confronting people who were prideful in their sin. He angered people who were in authority by telling them that they were sinners. And he gave gracious and comforting words of forgiveness to those who repented. He perfectly fulfilled what Jonah couldn't do. And here's the thing, folks, as you know, because he did those things, we also have hope to live like that. Because his heart is now in us. That incarnation that he took on bodily here, now he lives in us. He's made his home with us. And we have the hope of being able to live a life like that because he's at work in us. We will fail. We will be not half, not near, not a fraction as loving as he was or as gracious as he was. We will fail. But he is alive and at work in us. And that's the greatest promise is because ultimately the salvation of our people, even our endurance and our ongoing love for the people is not dependent on us. It's not dependent on you getting it right this year. It's not dependent on you finally figuring it out, you finally getting over that sin struggle that you have of of comparison or anger. Yes, you should be seeking the Lord in that. Yes, you should be continually conformed into his image. But ultimately, the success of our mission and our work and our lives depends upon the heart of this God who pities the lost, who loves and longs for the great cities of the world, the peoples and the places of the world, and who will bring it about. So friends, I hope that you look to him in the coming year, even as we finish out this year, maybe as you take a time to look back, you take time to look forward into the year to come, maybe you're making goals and plans like we are on our team for the next two years, that you would look with hope and expectation because the Lord who loved, who pitied the city of Nineveh, he loves and he pities the sinners of the world and he lives in us and his people are all around us and he can do it in this year. So friends, I hope as you look at this year, you say you have that optimistic, that hopeful, who knows what the Lord could do in 2024. Man, I hope that his nearness, the promise of his goodness, his pity, his grace, even towards us, 
who have said that we are him, even towards us who have failed this calling many times. I pray that that is a, a support and a strength to your soul as you move into the new year. Thanks, friends. Merry Christmas, and we'll see you next year.